Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and good afternoon. My name is Daniela Burrell, tech writer at Fortune. It's my pleasure to be your moderator today for today's Commonwealth Club program, How Technology is Reshaping Democracy and Our Lives. Could there be a more important topic to discuss right now? I'm pleased to be joined by two experts to talk about this topic, which is explored in the new book edited by one of our speakers today, Jim Steyer. Jim is the founder and CEO of Common Sense Media, a media advocacy organization for families and schools. This program is being held in association with Common Sense Media. Jim is the editor of the new book, Which Side of History? How Technology is Reshaping Democracy and Our Lives. The book offers a collection of essays on how technology is affecting democracy, society, and our future, and it's available where books are sold. Jim is joined today by one of the contributors to the book, Frank Bower. Frank is a writer at The Atlantic and author of two books himself. His contribution to Jim's book is focused on the new era of deepfake videos. We will discuss that and much more here today. Before we jump into the conversation, one final note before we start. If you have a question for either Jim or Frank, please post it in the YouTube chat box or the Facebook comments section, and they'll be forwarded to me during the program. So let's go ahead and get started. First of all, congrats to you both on the new book. It looks great. And um, let's go ahead and just get started with the big picture. I want to I wanna start on a, on a larger level, and then we'll sort of zoom in as we get uh, a little deeper. Um, so when we talk about, I know we could spend an hour on this topic alone, but when we talk about the bigger issues related to these massive tech companies, in this particular moment, I'm curious to know what concerns you most about the growing power of big tech companies. And, and Jim, I'll let you go ahead and start on that one. Thank you very much, Danielle and Frank. Thanks for being here. Um, and welcome, everybody. I mean, I think two things come to mind immediately. First of all, we're in the middle of perhaps the most important election of our lifetimes. And I'm over 40 now, so I could tell you this is a really important election, in my opinion. And technology is playing a huge role in this election. Um, and in, in many cases, uh, there are people who are using it to potentially try to undermine some of our democratic norms and institutions. So just in the context of the 2020 election, technology and the role of a handful of really large tech companies is absolutely paramount. And the second thing is, as you know, I am the founder and CEO of Common Sense Media, the largest kids media and advocacy group in the United States. And we have you know, well over 100 million unique users, and they're focused mostly on the impact of technology on their children and on their kids' education. So what we are seeing at this point is in, in a COVID-19 era where we're doing shows like this on a Zoom screen, our kids are going to school on a Zoom screen and their lives are being shaped by technology and by screen information for many hours a day. So whether it's our democracy or our kids or the future of our economy, this, this really is a question of, the, the existential issues facing our society, and honestly, which side of history are the big tech companies on, period? Um, just to start, I wanted to just say congratulations to Jim. I mean, this book is, I think, the most comprehensive examination of tech's place in our lives, in our personal lives, in our democratic lives, in our economic lives, and it's a truly... Um, star-studded cast of contributors, and uh, uh, so it's a it's a it's a really terrific, important volume. Um, when I think about uh, when I think about tech, I think about in the long view. Um, you know, tech is one of these things that is just an, an innate, essential human drive that humans produce tools to make our lives better, and so. Um, We've created tools wherever we go in whatever era, and those tools become an extension of ourselves. The hammer is an extension of the arm. The factory is an extension of upper body strength. And the tools that we've created now are primarily intellectual tools that are extensions of our brain. And the problem is, is that for me, is that the companies that operate these tools that control these intellectual processes operate 
in an invisible way where we're, we're not really fully aware of all of the forces that they exert on us. And so um, they have tremendous powers to manipulate human beings that they sell it as kind of making our lives easier because they alleviate us of the burden of choice. So when it comes to picking a restaurant or charting a route to get from point A to point B, we really appreciate that. But when it comes to something like structuring democratic conversation or structuring a marketplace, um, the invisible power that they exert becomes um, anti-democratic. And so I, when I think about the big tech companies and um, their role in our lives, I worry about um, how they're shaping not just, not just everyday life and not just even shaping government and policy and marketplaces, but how they are visibly and profoundly affecting the course of the species because um, we're merging with these machines. And, you know, they talk about the day when Google gets implanted in your brain and we are already wearing them on our wrists and, uh, you know, if Google Glass and augmented reality is something we wear in the bridge of your nose. But there, the day when we merge with these machines in a more profound sort of way is just around the corner. And unless we set up the right sorts of rules and frameworks, uh, we're not just giving ourselves over to machines, we're giving ourselves up over to the companies that run and control those machines. That That's a great way to, to explain that, uh, Frank. And I know I actually have some questions further down the way that talks directly at this and specifically a, about your chapter, which kind of discusses this in a more profound way. Um, I, I want to quickly uh, just touch on something, um, given you know the moment we're in. Um, I know that uh, since the 2016 presidential election, we've learned a lot about the role technologies have played in our democracy. I mean, we, we've, we've learned a lot since then. A lot has come out and we're still learning, I think. Um, and, and what we've seen is, is a little bit of two things, right? We've seen um, further division of our country. Um, that's happening within politics on its own, but obviously we're seeing it sort of amplified through technology. Um, and then we're also seeing these companies desperately try to curtail some of this, um, how well they're doing, you know. Um, but I am curious um, on your, both of your opinions. Um, do you think it's getting any better? If we're to look at 2016 versus where we are now, um, have we gotten any better? Yeah, I would say yes and no. So in 2016, it's clear that probably the single biggest foreign adversary we have, Russia, manipulated our election on behalf of one of the candidates. That's an absolute disgrace. Imagine if we had said in 2015 or when we were in high school or college that a, that the, our biggest international adversary would manipulate our election with, with the acquiescence of one of the two major candidates for president. That's mind-boggling. But more importantly, with the knowledge of and the acquiescence of one of the major companies in America, Facebook. But that's exactly what happened in the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And by the way, that continues to happen to this day. The second thing that happens, and again, I'm going to put point the finger significantly at Facebook and Instagram because they've been the platform most of all that have done this. They've also spread division. When you've looked at the formation of white supremacy groups and militia groups and, you know, just this morning and a plot to assassinate the government governor of Michigan by some white supremacist militia crazies in Michigan. Where do you think they form on Facebook? So I think that in some ways it was worse in 2016 because we didn't know about it. But in 2020, we know about it. And some of the companies are doing nothing about it or they're paying lip service to it. So and, and by the way, they're profiting massively at the same time from people who are trying to use those platforms for misinformation, disinformation. And as you mentioned, Danielle, division. So it's a really interesting moment. And, and the companies themselves bear enormous responsibility, as do the politicians who, in, in some cases, have actually encouraged them to sow mistrust and misinformation. But from a democratic norm standpoint, this is unprecedented. And it's it's a clarion call to all of us, no matter what our political perspectives, to be involved. I don't know, Frank, what do you think? I think that um, that at a micro level, there's certain things that they're doing well now. Like I, when it comes to Russian interference, I think that if Facebook or Twitter or the tech companies 
see some sign of it, they, they, they're going to jump on that problem because they don't want to be tagged in the same sort of way that they were in 2017. But I think a lot of what they do just kind of points to the even bigger problem. Like, so you take Facebook's decision about QAnon the other day. On the one hand, I'm kind of grateful for that Facebook is taking action here, right? And that they're doing something to try to tamp down on um, the conspiracies that spread through their machines. On the other hand, it, you, you've got to say it's it, there's so much power invested in these companies so that they are then regulating the public square in unprecedented sorts of ways. And who decides what's a conspiracy and what's not a conspiracy? Well, you know, a couple people and who are not democratically elected, who have an extreme profit interest. But I think the biggest problem, so that's one big problem, is the, the concentration of power. The other big problem is, is that they've broken the world in a way in which we're not going to be able to quickly repair it, which is that they've, they've destroyed uh, authoritative institutions that, that were the, the, safe, the guardians of truth. And so media and our institutions are so distrusted in the world. There's a reason that conspiracy flourishes, and it's not just that it's disseminated via Facebook. It's that Facebook broke the institutions that were actually the primary byways of truth to the public. That's a well, profound that's point, Danielle. He, Frank I, is I, absolutely yeah. right. I actually, you know, totally agree. You know, we, we do talk about, uh, I think it's a mixture, right, of, of politics and tech, um, sort of destroying the trust in the institutions we're used to trusting. So uh, great point. And it's, it's actually a, a really important segue to what I actually was going to ask next, which is, um, you know, all of this has already happened, right? We've, like, people already are sort of down the rabbit hole, genies out of the bottle. Um, these groups are forming and they're going to continue to form. I think, right, like Facebook has already openly admitted it's sort of like an arms race, right, to stay ahead of this, um, which I don't know if you can stay ahead of it. Um, I'm curious where, what, what do we do now? Like these technologies exist. They're going to continue to exist in some form. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I, I think we could be as idealistic as we want to be here, but uh, what, I mean, we can't just, just say, okay, everybody throw out your laptop. Um, what, what do we do now? now? Three things, very simple. And I think you're starting to see this happen. And I'm proud to say I run the most important organization, advocacy group in the United States, if not globally, that's actually done several of these things. First and foremost, they've operated in a completely deregulated environment for the past 15 years. It's been a joke. So the political leadership in America, particularly in Washington, D.C., abdicated their responsibility and allowed this, what Frank and I just described and you've described, Danielle, happened in a vacuum with the complete and utter pathetic behavior of Washington, D.C. on both sides of the aisle. They failed to regulate anything even though our public square was literally being turned upside down and many of our democratic norms and economic norms were. So number one, you can do what we did in California, which is we passed the landmark California Consumer Privacy Act, the first privacy law in the United States in 20 years, in 2018, which is now the law of the land. So that's an example of how we have to have government regulation. And depending on the electoral result in less than a month, you're going to have a chance to basically the California privacy law is the law of the land now for everybody because we passed it here and all the companies are here. And along with GDPR in Europe, you now have a privacy regime that all companies really have to follow. But you need a federal privacy law. But you also need platform accountability laws, which we can talk about. So the idea that, that the tech companies are not treated like publishers. Danielle, you work for a publisher. You, you, and so do I, by the way. Common Sense Media is a publisher with hundreds of millions of users. I am responsible for what's on my platform, but I'm not, I, but, and so is the editor in chief of Fortune magazine, right? And Fortune Digital. So you're going to have to see, number one, a clear set of regulatory structures because the companies themselves have proven incapable of self regulation. Second, you're going to hold, have to hold the companies accountable for their errors, both through regulatory structures, but also public shaming. So, for example, we've done a campaign over the last couple of months aimed at Facebook called Stop Hate for Profit that led to a month-long advertising boycott by many of the largest advertisers in the world of that platform. You're going to have to see, therefore, pressure on, at, the, at the corporate level because there's been such an accumulation of power in a small handful of hands, as Frank mentioned. But the third thing is the public is just going to have to step up and play their role. And, and I mean, and I think we're starting to see that. 
You've really seen that in this election, much more than in 2016 or even 2018. So the public has to become more aware of the impact of tech on our society, call for thoughtful common sense regulation. But there's a role for government, there's a role for corporate responsibility, and then there's a role for every single person in the audience to hold this situation accountable and get us to the place we want to be. Those are the three things I say need to happen. Frank. I think it's interesting to just situate ourselves in the pandemic where um, everything, all the, all, all the problems of society get, um, <clears throat> have become exaggerated and in some ways easier to see. And so you see the way in which a lot of formerly public responsibilities have then have become invested in private actors. And, um, you know, government has failed in so many ways over the course of this pandemic that you know, institution Amazon or or Google becomes an institution in which the public actually has greater faith than in, in a lot of ways in their own their own government. And I think that um, that needs to be reversed. And so I think that there needs to be a reinvigoration of government and a restoration of faith in public institutions. I think that there needs that there needs to be. Um, you know, I think that David Cicilline's report that came out uh, just the other day is one of the most significant documents produced by government in a very long time, by the Congress in a very long time. And if it hadn't been published, you know, twenty nine days out from a presidential election, it would have been all over the front pages. But I think it provides a blueprint for what the next administration um, could do with big tech, which is that there, there's going to be some form of breakup, you know, of, of at least some of these companies. And it's something that we don't need to fear. It's something that we should, we should welcome. It, and, and I think it will, will uh, actually produce greater innovation. And I think it'll be healthy for the democracy. But I also just want to amplify something that you said, Jim, which is that there is, um, you know, I, I think we need to actually, in the whole paradigm, change the way that, that, that we individually act, that, um, that what needs to happen is we need to, we've been passive consumers in this whole big scheme. And what I think you promote at Common Sense Media and what I, I, I wholeheartedly embrace is that there's a need for us to behave more actively as citizens and also to exert greater control over technology's role in our own lives, that we need to be countercultural about this and you see it happening, but that's one of the, 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 the things that unfortunately this pandemic has kind of thrust upon us is that we are so utterly dependent on technology and thank goodness for zoom and, 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 and teams and WebEx and all these, these technologies that allow life to continue. But on the other hand, like, you know, we, we also see how tiring it is to live a life on screens and how, a life on screens, as 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 beneficent and wonderful as it is to have these tools, like we can't allow it to become the sum total of life, and that requires us to exert greater control. Great to pick up on one thing that Frank just said, Danielle. So I have a, I'm a Stanford professor. I've been a Stanford professor for more than thirty years, and I have a class right now on election 2000 with nearly 2000 students taking it on zoom. It's really interesting. By the way, it's not the same as being in front of a live audience of a thousand kids. It's 2000 people on a zoom screen. So this past Monday night, my guests were John Hennessy, the president former president of Stanford, who's the board chair of Google and Kara Swisher, the well-known tech journalist, um, who, uh, uh, and, and Nate personally, Stanford law professor is the number one expert on technology and election. So Kara, to, 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 uh, who is thoughtful and outspoken at the top of the list, in my opinion, said to John Hennessy, the chair of Google and Alphabet, John, you are, this is to Frank's point, you are going to be broken up. Google is going to be broken up. Why don't you face the facts now? It's going to be good for you, by the way. You're going to actually be even more valuable at the end of the day. But it was really an interesting moment. She said in front of 2,000 Stanford students, said, John, you're the board chair. You used to run this university. Why don't you face the facts? We are going to break you up. You should be broken up. Facebook should be broken up and forced to divest itself of WhatsApp and Instagram. This is going to happen. Why don't you take the lead and do it on your own? I thought it was one of the most interesting. And John Hennessy had a really interesting smiled and laughed and said, 
there may be some the truth, but I agree. So Congressman Cicilline's report, which which Frank referred to, is the first time that we've even dealt with some of the concentration of power issues and the fact that it, in an unprecedented way in our lifetimes, and I think in American history, a small handful of companies have have, have achieved a level of impact and dominance on our lives and on our institutions, unpar- unprecedented American history. So how we address this will determine which side of history we're all on. Danielle, can I, can I add one thing to what, what yeah, Jim, Jim just said? It, it's, I, I think that in terms of appreciating the stakes, and I think the book does, a, it does an excellent job of this, is that um, what's at stake is actually almost spiritual, right? It's that, that, um, it's that it's about maintaining autonomy, but it's also protecting, it's about protecting communities and preserving institutions, like, you know, just at the most basic level, like we've seen the way in which dependence on technology um, comes to interfere with familial life, right? Like the way in which it kind of draws us apart, draws us apart, even when we're residing in the same physical spaces. And that to protect these things that we really care about, and once, once they're gone, they're gone. Um, like we, we, we need to, we, we, we can't, we can't kind of um, dance around the ultimate, the ultimate stakes. And I, you know, I just, again, a pandemic example, um, you know, you strolled, I strolled down my main street in Washington um, uh, and I see all the short stores gone. I see all the Amazon packages mount up and like on some level it is a zero sum game. Right. And we all know that in our core and I want to have, I, I, my life is richer if I have, if I have, if I have stores, if I have a local marketplace that I can touch, where I have serendipitous interactions with people who don't look like me, who with their vendors who actually care about, you know, uh, about what the, the street looks like and um, are trying to improve that. And um, I think as we think about economic structure going into this next administration, I think we need to think about some of these core values as we as we remake things. Yeah, and and you you all actually dove right into what I wanted to talk about next, which is regulation. Um, obviously, you, you touched on antitrust, which I want to get into, but I want to ask specifically because um, Jim, I know that you have a particular stance on this. I want to I want to touch um, and, and and it does sort of cover everything we've been talking about. I want to touch Section two thirty. Um, and I know that's a real controversial thing right now. Um, for those who don't know what Section 230 basically does is it allows tech companies um, from being held liable. It doesn't leave them liable to what their users post. So if I post something, it's not Facebook's fault. Um, so that's what section that's the way Section 230 is benefiting tech companies. Um, but uh, Jim, I, I think you you actually are are not a fan of Section 230. So um, um, let, let's talk a little, bit, talk about a little bit about that. So I, in fact, in the book, I wrote a piece about Section 230 with my colleague and uh, a good friend, Bruce Reed, who Frank knows well, who's chief domestic policy advisor for Clinton, Obama, he's Vice, Vice President Biden's chief of staff. Very, very knowledgeable. And we basically said how Section 230 hurts kids, because what you just explained, Danielle, is right. Section 230 was, here's what people need to understand. It was written in 1996, when Mark Zuckerberg was in diapers, right? When Google was just, you know, and Larry and Sergey were in high school. Guys, that's the last, that they set this law. Basically, the purpose of Section 230 was to prevent certain kinds of pornography and other stuff on the internet, but also... It had nothing to do with what it's been. It immunized. It immu- It was designed to protect the internet from bad behavior, and it immunized tech companies and didn't treat them as publishers. It treated them as utilities. But the whole thing is, it gave them immunity for whatever on their platform. Unlike, by the way, what Fortune or ABC, NBC, Comcast, a print, radio, TV publication has. They're responsible for what's on their platform as publisher. So, and no one's done anything about it in 24 years. And I've been going to various senators since once we made the breakthrough on privacy. So I want to talk about privacy. I'm sure we'll talk about privacy as well. But once we made the landmark breakthrough by passing the California Consumer Privacy Act, which is the law of the land in America, you could you realize you could regulate over the objection of some of the largest tech companies in the world who all happen to be based in California. You could see that we could do this. So we have been calling for the last two to three years for the re 
reimagining Section 230. So here's the deal. You need to be at the simplest level. I would say this. We should treat the tech, large tech platforms like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, the same way we treat large television, cable, radio and print outlets. You should have standards and practices for the content on your platform. You should have teams who control that, even if it's user generated content. If you do not adhere to those standards, you should be punished for that. You should be held liable for that. It's a fairly simple construct since it's how we operate in all aspects of our society. That said, I am a law professor at Stanford. I teach First Amendment law. I am well aware of the fact that you do not want to have a position where government is regulating speech per se. But there, are, there is a very positive way to completely overhaul Section 230. I have a piece with Bruce in the book called Why Section 230 is Bad for Kids and How We Can Change It. And by the way, I think we will change it in 2021. It just requires a change of regime in Washington because Congress, and by the way, Donald Trump yesterday, I believe, tweeted repeal Section 230. So you have people on both sides of the political aisle uh, saying this, Josh Hawley and some of the other most conservative senators in the country um, are calling for the, either repeal or complete overall of Section 230 as well. They claim that media tech companies are biased against them. I think that's complete baloney. That said, this is going to lead for a massive overhaul. But that should have happened a decade ago, by the way. This could have been this was all preventable. But they do not deserve immunity any more than Fortune deserves immunity if you published hate speech and violent stuff on a Fortune platform. So there's a happy medium here, but smart people on both sides are going to have to come together and, and recraft a legislative regulatory structure in 2021. And we're going to need a competent functioning Federal Communications Commission, too, to enforce those laws. But I'm optimistic that you're going to see Section 230 massive regulate a change. I think you'll see privacy even stronger than the California law. And then I think you are going to see antitrust. So the era of finally regulating the tech industry with common sense, thoughtful protections that benefit the public and our democratic norms and institutions, that is just around the corner. I do. Um, and I think that, um, you know, we need to dispense with some of the kind of the original Aaron Swartz type dreams about the way that the Internet functions, because we know that it's already power is concentrated, that 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 there is no true um, free, free speech on um, the platforms is um, is only partially true, that it's the it's the platform that governs the rules. And rather than have an unaccountable corporation setting the rules. What we need to have is uh, a set of public-minded standards so that there is some form of democratic accountability to the way that that public square is structured. And, and I want to I challenge you because I know there's a lot of people probably watching this and saying, um, you know, but, you know, both on Section 230 and on antitrust, oh, if we break the companies away, if we put all these new regulations, it's not going to be the same. I'm not going to get to go on Facebook and say my opinions. They, you know, there's a lot of people who already believe that Facebook and Twitter are covering up things unfairly, um, hiding things unfairly, enforcing policies unfairly. Um, and then there are a lot of people who are also concerned about the breaking up of big tech and what that could cause for possible security and possible um, just ability to to use the services we have today. I'm curious as to both of your answers um, to that kind of pushback. Well, I think you're going to have a robust public discussion, and I think you're going to need, pardon the uh, phraseology, a common sense solution to this. You're going to have to have some of the most thoughtful people in this country with looking at the long-term best interests of these of the society and these platforms. Um, it's simply not true that you're not going to be able to put up your own opinion on stuff. That's not true. But there may be limitations on whether or not you can spew forth hate speech and certain forms of violent content that, that would violate any First Amendment norms under existing law that cover all the other platforms and expression platforms in, in this country. Um, so 
Many of those fears are unfounded. Part of it is we haven't had this discussion, Danielle, until very recently. I mean, the fact that you're using the term Section 230 is ironic to me. I'm being serious, meaning we've been railing about this issue, and I've been railing about privacy since I wrote Talking Back to Facebook in 2012. But two years ago, if we had said Section 230, nobody knows what you're talking about. That could be a part of the supermarket uh, where you get the meat counter. So it's only in the last six months that the public has started, and the policymakers have started to understand that we actually have no regulation. But I'm very optimistic that a, a thought, if you have leadership, and by the way, it's going to require national leadership, but if we have thoughtful, common sense national leadership, I believe we can address all of these regulatory ways in a way that's going to benefit everybody in, and, and, and allow for a diversity of public discourse uh, and civic discourse and, and a broad, broad a variety of opinions, but in a way that's much healthier for our democracy. Do you agree, Frank? I mean, I, 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 I you know, I actually, um, I think the way I think about it is that I have faith. I have faith in um, our ability to create democratic standards and to do to create more democratic structures. But I also have faith in the the market and 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 in the company's ability to innovate our way out of these problems. But I don't think that they're going to innovate their way out of these problems unless there is significant public pressure on them to change. And so. Uh, once you start to, um, once you start to, I mean, I, I look at Microsoft and how Microsoft evolved in response to the government's antitrust case in the late 1990s. And I think that that was one of the most underrated episodes in American political economy, that Microsoft was a company that behaved incredibly badly. And when the, they worried about the government breaking it up, they started to um, behave more responsibly as it relates to consumers. And I think in aggregate, they started to behave like a more mature, publicly minded company that was less abusive of the power that it has. And, um, you know, I just look back over the course of American history. And what you see is you have, you have, you have a series of communication monopolies. And the, what the government does very successfully is it prevents those monopolies from extending themselves into the next realm so that they can't control the next new thing. So, you know, you have the post office, the first communications monopoly, and the government said, no, you can't get it into the telegraph business. And so you have Western Union come in and um, with some government help, they established a monopoly in the telegraph business. But they worried that Ulysses S. Grant was going to nationalize the telegraph business. And so they were restrained when it came to telephone, uh, the telephone business. And then you had AT&T, of course, which operated under you know, pretty massive constraints from the government and the government prevented them from getting into the radio business and so on and so forth. And I think that that's really what we need ultimately government to do in, in the biggest picture, which is to allow space for the next set of innovators to come around and produce the technology that does have better security than we're getting at, but better privacy protections, um, a more responsible way of curating the public square than the Facebook model. I agree. And I will tell you, Danielle, that for, since I have to work with the people who run all the tech companies and whether they like it or not, they respond to common sense and us. You know, I see a difference in leadership in some of the com- companies, for example. I mean, Google, which has been it's obviously one of the massive companies we're talking about here. I would tell you that the leadership at Google now under Sundar Pichai and John Hennessy, the board chair, and the, 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 the new leadership there over the last couple of years has a much better sense of the public interest. They've been very important. By the way, they have, the, they have a huge dominant role in education in the United States, whether people, our audience knows that or not. Basically, most teachers in the United States, particularly in a distance learning environment, are using Google Classroom. So it's hard to exp- express the degree to which Google, in just one example, reaches into so many aspects of our lives. You, people think about it as search, but they dominate education. They are by far the most important company. Yeah, but I'm optimistic that with a, have a thoughtful regulatory structure on top of it, that Sundar and the people who run Google will see that as a public good and really invest in that in a positive way. I'd say similarly, you mentioned Zoom. So Eric Yuan, who's the CEO of Zoom, they, which is suddenly, you never heard of Zoom a year ago. Now everybody knows who Zoom is. And Eric, an immigrant from China, is a very, very successful businessman. Look, he had been, we know them well because they're part of a platform we built called Wide Open School. So is Google. And they uh, had big privacy issues, as you may recall. 
when Zoom burst onto the scene, they had huge privacy problems. And we went direct, we worked directly with Eric and the people who run the company because we're the number one consumer privacy group in the country to help them address that issue. So I, I am optimistic that with a good framework about public interest oriented regulation, coupled with more enlightened leadership from some of the companies, we're going to get progress. I, we keep calling out Facebook, I think, because they more than any other company, and I, I actually think it's the leadership and the structure, governance structure of that company where one person has singular control of all decisions. I think they're the ones that are the most troubling so far. But, you know, philanthropically, Mark Zuckerberg and his wife, Priscilla Chan, have actually been very thoughtful. So perhaps in they'll, so perhaps they're going to come around too, but I think they're going to have to be hammered big time before that really happens. Danielle, can I add, can I add one, can I add one last point? Here? Yeah. If you could be brief, I, I want to get actually Frank to your chapter. So oh, it's um... okay. You can, you, uh, well, uh, this is just a warning and I'll be, I'll be really quick about it, which is that I think the danger is that if we create a regulatory structure where we manage to concentrate, uh, corporate power and create an alliance with government where their power is in turn protected by a regulatory apparatus. Um, Like we end up going in a Chinese sort of direction where um, that symbiotic relationship becomes an exploitative one. Gotcha. Well, um, I'm going to quickly get, I want to get to your chapter, Frank, but I just want to mention that we do have some questions coming in from our audience. So I want to leave some time for that. Um, But I think it's really important we talk about your chapter, uh, given sort of where we're headed. Um, So for everybody uh, watching or listening, um, Frank did uh, write a chapter in uh, Jim's book about deep fakes. And I really want to read just this this quote, because it's it's quite troubling. So with everything we've talked about, the misinformation, all the problems, he says, soon this may seem like an age of innocence. We'll shortly live in a world where our eyes routinely deceive us. Put differently, we're not so far from the collapse of reality. Um, And he's talking about, obviously, uh, the dissemination and popularization of deepfakes, which you know, we've already seen some really interesting ones come up. Um, luckily, we haven't seen that completely take over our lives yet. But, you know, it's it, we're not far from. We're seeing manipulated videos already play a role in this election. Um, leading up to this election, we've seen several um, edited videos to make it appear as something had happened or make it appear as something, you know, whether the time was slowed down or Sleepy Joe Biden, that that was a video we saw that that was manipulated. Um, I'm curious, um, Frank, could you tell us in your uh, in in your thoughts, uh, how far are we away from convincing deep fakes sort of causing this real societal damage you're talking about? Well, I think it does connect to everything we were talking about at the beginning about distrust of authority and how. Um, we don't we don't know, you know, once upon, not so long ago, um, if you look at the last couple presidential elections, there's been some piece of visual evidence that's played a decisive role in shaping the narrative of the election, if not the outcome. So you like the Mitt Romney, 47 uh, percent video, like it's the or um, the Access Hollywood video. And there's something about um in a in a in a world where we don't you know people don't trust media so much anymore there's something about um the verisimilitude of of those videos the raw authentic nature of them that causes people to to really trust them or if you look at something like um like uh like the 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 uh the George Floyd tape or any other the Flandreau Castro tape those recorded instances of police brutality have been so profoundly important to mobilizing public opinion and creating a sea change. And so I, I, I worry that, um, that, you know, that one last thing that we can kind of all agree upon will suddenly disappear and that there, there will be nothing that will be capable of rallying the public to believe that something happened. And so if we, if we can no longer, you know, I don't think we're that far away, really, to creating convincing, totally convincing 
deep fake videos. Um, I mean, I think we're, 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 we're on the cusp of that. If you, if, 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 if one of these uh, big companies had some commercial interest in producing it, they could make it happen, I think, relatively quickly. But um, we're completely unprepared for it. Like, as, like everything else we're talking about, um, there is no, there's no, you know, there's no thoughtful structure for dealing with the problem. And so once our idea of shared reality kind of fully starts to collapse, I mean, I really do think it, it challenges the very uh, foundations of democratic discourse. How do we, how do we then agree on anything? How do we, if, 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 if we can't, if we can't agree on what's real, then the ability which to is have, sort of uh, already what we're having a problem with, right? Absolutely. Agreeing which reality everybody has a different reality depending on what what they're either watching, reading, or even just seeing on their own um, in their own vacuum, so to speak. But the Section two hundred and thirty issue will matter to some extent. Frank's piece there about deep fakes, a, a more robust uh, regulatory scheme would allow you to go after platforms that that enable deep fakes on the platform. You, they, there's absolutely a liability structure that could be for both regulatory purposes, but also individual liability. If, if you were able to sue, if Nancy, like the deep fake involved in Frank's piece was about Nancy Pelosi, a deep fake video of Nancy Pelosi, as I recall. And so Nancy, if Nancy Pelosi was, had the right to sue Facebook for that, I'm sorry, you have a huge liability issue there and the companies will clean the act up. That's the marketplace working. It's, it's one of the, there's a, there are also individual legal ways to go after this and to return to a much more normal uh, 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 regime. But we have to have a regulatory structure in place for that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I want to get to a, a couple of quick audience questions um, before we get some closing thoughts, because I, I have a feeling we're going to have a lot of closing thoughts. Um, but I'm just going to go down the list as they came in. Um, our first question is, uh, why does more propaganda from Russians matter when torrents come from everywhere, including from political parties and independents? Um, I, I don't know if anybody has a... a I, I, um, I've been... a. Uh... I've written a lot about Russia and Russia manipulation. And, you know, I think what Russia has done is, um, in, in almost every regard, is exploit something pre-existing. So they're exploiting um, like pre-existing American polarization and they're exploiting the platforms. They understood the weaknesses of Facebook. And in some ways they were using it in a way in which it was designed at its core. Facebook is... A manipulation machine where the platform is trying to manipulate its users into spending as much time on the platform as possible by riling their emotions. I mean, the Russians were using it as intended. Um, I think that, um, you, you know, I think it's okay to, to establish a hierarchy of, of, of things that we care about. And kind of at the outer end of things that we should all agree is completely unacceptable is for a foreign government to come into our country and try to um, manipulate the political etho ecosystem in order to undermine the foundations of democracy. So I, I think, you know, while Trump does a lot of horrible things, I think in the, the scheme of things, at least we should all be able to agree that that is out of that the Russian interference is out of bounds. Unfortunately, um, because of the president, um, we're not able to agree that Russian interference is out of bounds. Out of bounds. I mean, Danielle, I think that's an act of war. I actually think it's an act of warfare by a foreign adversary, and we would normally respond if it weren't for the leadership of our country and the fact that they were benefiting, they perceived themselves to be benefiting and have a unique, and who wants to explain this relationship? I don't. But it, that's an act of warfare against our country. And, and in normal times and under normal leadership, we would have responded as it's an act of warfare, period. That's very different when a foreign government adversary goes after us like that. Um, and then another question has come in. It looks like I'm assuming this is about um, content moderation, but uh, apologies. Um, uh, I'm not fully sure. Um, why so much focus on nationalists, including the tiny few fanatics there, when far left fanatics attacking them are ignored? I mean, I, I, I mean, ideally, if you're creating rules for the internet, they would be politically and ideologically 
agnostic and we'd be able to establish kind of what is out of bounds because it's a distortion of truth that is somehow um, harmful to the common good or to the democratic good in a way that we achieve. I do think that um, it's hard to establish any sort of equivalence right now, just given um, the level of right-wing conspiratorial thinking. I mean, it's just that you have a president who won't condemn QAnon and that has festered in the way that it has. I mean, I can't, I can't sit here and say, oh, it's all, it's all the same. It's all happening in equal ways across the political spectrum because it's not. I agree with Frank, but there, we should have agnostic rules. But you, you've, you've seen, a, they're just, you've seen white supremacy groups and others much more active and, and conspiracy groups much more active. But yes, it should cut across the board. The regulation should apply equally to everybody. Um, and, and this uh, next question, again, also on content moderation related to the last question. And Jim, I think you actually already kind of uh, started to talk about this a little bit. And it's the concern about um, who decides what is true or not, right? Um, and I don't know um, in the future, I, this person is just asking, like, who decides what's true or not? And, and um, you know, especially if they're nonviolent messages where it's, you know, unclear. Um, and I think you had also mentioned a little bit about um, regulation and possible rules, but but you still get into this gray area, right, of, you know, what is true and what is not, and what is the line of like a half truth? Is that fair? Um, I, I, let's explore that a little bit. A little bit. Uh, my reaction is that really, when it comes to the, in the, the company, the platforms we're talking about, this is an issue for their corporate responsibility in the same way that I have, a, I, I am the CEO of a very large platform that will have tens of million users on it today. And I'm responsible for what's on that platform. So Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg at all are responsible for what's on the Facebook and Instagram platforms, period. Um, I think when you get into government determining what's true or not, you're really down a slippery slope that I, I don't think works under the First Amendment. But I think that all companies should particularly have the responsibility to moderate what's on their on their platforms. And and by the way, they are coining money. They are trillion dollar corporations. They have the ability to do moderation. And by the way, will there be some controversial decisions? Yes, but with big with big bucks and big uh, power comes big responsibility. But this is something that all the platforms need to be responsible for and held responsible for. But I don't think you're going to get government in the business of determining what's true or not. But having said it, for all other publishing in the 21st and 20th centuries, we've had a very competent regime that's worked very well for broadcast and cable television, for radio, for print. And you can basically extrapolate from that and do that for social media and the Internet as well. So I'm confident that we can do that in a thoughtful and common sense way. But there's a ton of responsibility on these trillion dollar companies to do their job. And in some cases, they simply haven't done that. I think, I think um, uh, one reason one I'm reason kind of an antitrust, antitrust purist, purist is that is that if you if you create greater competition and you, you create a more decentralized world, then what one social media platform does uh, like doesn't necessarily shape uh, discourse across all platforms. So if if you know what may be acceptable in what may be acceptable in Reddit is not necessarily acceptable on Facebook. And you're creating different ecosystems where people have different comfort levels about the way in which the platform is governed. But I think ultimately, it is a lot of power to concentrate in the hands of these corporations. And you know, I think you're right that we have created regimes in the past that show that it's possible to uh, impose certain rules that require these companies to act more in the common good. But I think that these these mediums are also very different than broadcast mediums, and it's it's harder to create um, to create those rules. I mean, the nature of a democratic social media environment is that people will say stupid things, and they'll say hyperbolic things, and they'll promote theories like about the world that are palpably untrue. And we can't we we can't stop that, and nor should we want us to to, to, to to tamp that down entirely. But I think that there are certain things that do cross limits that become untenable for democratic society. And, you know, deep fakes, I think, is a good example of that, um, where 
you know, there's a, there's maybe not an entirely bright line, but, but a line that we could establish and it's important to establish. Um, Our next question from the audience, uh, why is the call for restrictions and even censorship now, particularly over electronic communication coming from factions formerly most concerned about restrictions and censorship? I mean, I think what what I think it's a fair point. I mean, I think if I if I interpret the question, it's you know, it, it, you know, you could have been a card carrying member of the ACLU yesterday, and now you're suddenly calling for these private corporations to um, tamp down on speech. And I, you know, I I do think that there is you know some level probably of inconsistency there in terms of our our values, and I think that. Um, I think we do live in an era where uh, speech is under assault from you know many many different directions. Whether it's workplaces where you know if I have a tattoo or I wear a T-shirt, I could get fired from my job, and I or if I post something on social media that my employer doesn't like, I could get fired from my job. And I think that we need to be extremely conscious of um, preserving preserving and protecting speech writ large. Our motto is sanity, not censorship. Very good. Very good. Um, Frank, this next one looks like it's uh, maybe geared towards you. Um, What is the latest you've heard (laughs) about verification of videos with blockchain or similar tech to protect from deep fakes? So I would be... um... I would be masquerading if I if I pretended like I was an expert on blockchain or um, various technological solutions for these things. But I, you know, I um, I kind of pray that that there are that these things get innovated and that they exist and that um, there are ways for us for corporations to, to 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 leverage their ingenuity to create systems that um, root these things out and that create clearer, clearer determinations. I mean, it's what, what's wonderful is if you, I mean, I don't really believe that this is possible, um, but, you know, to have the kind of algorithmic or blockchain um, uh, adjudicator of, (laughs) of what's real or what's not real is kind of a dream. I think that ultimately some of these cases are actually pretty tough calls that are arbitrary and require human judgment because, you know, there are deep fake parodies, right? That um, that should be protected speech that we shouldn't want to see stamped out. And so, you know, would a blockchain? I mean, it might be sense. It might be sensitive enough to kind of root out the the the, the example so that it gets kicked up to a board of human beings that can then adjudicate the trickier cases. And then um, another deep fake question. Um, I'm not sure if you'll be able to answer this one. It's pretty uh, specific. Um, is the national security apparatus involved in the safeguarding against deep fakes? Do you know anything about that, Frank? I mean, I can comment broadly on what I, um, what I, what I think that the national security apparatus is involved in. And I think that um, – after the 2016 election, there was greater cooperation between the tech companies and the FBI and the NSA, and it, it was very slow in developing, but it's it's developed, and I think that there's a lot of communication back and forth, and it's really necessary for the tech companies because um, the NSA or the the CIA, the, the, the CIA or FBI could come across things, attempts by the Iranians or the the Russians or the Chinese to manipulate the platforms. And that human intelligence is always going to be more useful than um, what what the the investigators on the platforms or the algorithms on the platforms are going to be able to root out themselves. We need need that cooperation ultimately to keep the platforms a step ahead. Got it. Got it. Um, and then this one's a, a more general question. I'm going to ask this last question before we, we get our closing question, which will sort of help wrap up the whole thing. Um, this is a, an audience question again. Do some political factions today want all opposition silenced on media? Uh, and this sounds like a, you know, it's your opinion on what you think here. So. 
Well, they may, but it shouldn't happen. That'd be my reaction. There may be some people who believe that, but we have extraordinary uh, traditions of free speech and democracy in our country. Some of them have been under assault, but that shouldn't be the case. And, and I, I hope that wisdom and, and, and common sense will prevail. That's my reaction to that. You know, um, I, uh, one of my favorite pieces of writing is John Milton's Aeropagetica, which was a track that John Milton, Paradise Lost, uh, epic poet, uh, original Enlightenment thinker, wrote about the virtues of, um, of, of, of speech and how um, ultimately like, we do need to be tested by things that we can't stand. And that I do worry that as a society, whether it's because of filter bubbles or because of um, uh, kind of a, a, a culture that favors orthodoxy, um, we cease to be exposed to those things that we, we, we find disagreeable. Um, that's not to say that we can't set limits about disagreeable speech because some speech does cross lines. And I think it's okay to create, um, to create communities where there are boundaries for how, for what's acceptable and what's unacceptable speech. But I think that the nature of democratic society, the nature of, of a political society is that sometimes you have to accept that your position's not the winning position. You have to accept that, um, that there are people who, who exist, you coexist with, who hold opinions that you find, you know, uh, uh, despicable. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just how we, we get along. Great. And, and I, I do want to end with one question that allows you guys to sort of, um, think through the answer a little bit. It's a lot, a lot more broad and, and wrap up, um, sort of what we've been talking about today. Um, I'm curious as to how you think technology's impact will change in the upcoming years, how you see that broadening. Uh, do you see more? Are we headed in a good direction? Should we be concerned? What What do you see changing in upcoming years um, and, and sort of related to these broader issues? Frank, you want to go first, then I'll close? Yeah, um, I'll be fast. Um, I think that... Um, there's a sense of inevitability that we usually have about technology that there's this like these iron laws, these trajectories that we kind of we, we go along and that there's this this destiny that technology carries us along. But I think a lot of what we're talking about is retaining a sense of um, human and democratic agency in the face of that. And so as we rush forward into the future, I think it's actually important not to rush. I think it's important to ask questions about 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 things like you take something like facial recognition software, we can't just necessarily assume that it's a good that will like work out rules for eventually that will keep the thing constrained. I think that there may be moments where we need to get the structures in place before the technology actually arrives. Otherwise it's just going to be abused forever. And so everything that we're talking about today is about creating structures and rules so that technology serves human purposes. I'm pretty optimistic in the long run, Danielle, because I think we have a very resilient society and a resilient democracy. And I think we need a healthy balance that uh, in our society that, that protects the long-term interests of kids, families, and our democracy. And tech companies have a huge role and part to play in this, and I believe that they will. Uh, do that if we keep the pressure up on them. I think government clearly has a role to play um, to step in and regulate. And I think they can stop being missing in action with a good election result in, 20, in, in, a, in less than a month, and that that will lead um, to very positive long-term changes. Look, these are existential challenges, but I think we're as a society strong enough to meet them. The vast majority of Americans would like to see a thoughtful, carefully uh, moderated uh, media and tech environment that permits free expression, but balances it with other important societal values and norms, including the best interests of our kids. And to me, that balance has been missing till, uh, until very recently, but I'm optimistic it's going to come and that we can change it, that we as citizens and as people ourselves are going to change it, because ultimately it's up to all of us and consumers, parents, young people, educators, technology leaders. And at the end of the day, we all want 
the tech industry and ourselves to be on the right side of history. And it's time that we were on the right side of history, and I think we will be. So that's my final remark. Well, that's a great way to wrap up. Um, but unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today's program. Once again, I want to thank the Commonwealth Club and Common Sense Media for putting this program together. Uh, thanks again to Jim Steyer uh, and Common Sense Media for the new book, Which Side of History? How Technology is Reshaping Democracy and Our Lives. And thanks uh, to Frank uh, for your expertise and for being here as well. The club will soon be posting this video on its website, www.commonwealth.com club.org. I'm Daniela Burrell of Fortune Magazine. This Commonwealth Club program has now concluded. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.